Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, so glad you're here. My name's Aaron. Glad to get a chance to share with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, if you'd grab it and turn to the book of Philemon. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you under the chair in front of you, and we would encourage you to grab that one, and it'll be on page 1000 in that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that with you as our gift to you. We would love for you to have a Bible that you can look in, that you can read some of this stuff, check it out for yourself, see that I'm not just making stuff up up here, um, and, and dig deeper into what we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> so we got this little running joke sort of uh, in my family. We have a horrible time, like just really bad luck with drinking glasses that they just like shatter on contact for us. Like we've gone through, in, in the 10 years we've been married, we've probably gone through like four or five sets of drinking glasses. They just, they just break. And right now, currently, I think we own two because our last set has just, it, it's so bizarre. And I, it, sometimes I feel like it's just like nothing. The weirdest thing that ever happened, I was holding a glass and pouring milk, pouring milk into this glass. And I set the milk down and the bottom just drops out. It just, boom. And the milk just gushes everywhere. And I'm like, I did nothing. I didn't touch. It was the milk pushed the bottom out of the glass. Um, here's the point. When things break, sometimes it makes a mess, right? I mean, there was just milk just gushed everywhere. When things break, it leaves a mess. It, that's even more true with relationships. When relationships break, Lots of times it leaves a mess. And that's what we're talking about as we look at this letter, Philemon, which was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a friend of his named Philemon. And, and it's a letter about a broken relationship. And in a lot of ways, it's about the mess that is left behind when a relationship breaks. So today we're going to be talking about messy relationships. Here's the thing. We understand and we know messy relationships bring pain. Okay. Um, we're not going to deny that there's a lot of pain involved in what we're talking about. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see today, I hope, as we dig in to what Paul is saying, is that that mess and that pain is actually a part of the process that God uses in our lives to grow us, to, to actually unleash an explosion of grace in our lives. So as much as there is pain, what I hope we're going to see today is that God has a purpose behind the pain that we so often feel in our relationships. This is the second week of our series on Philemon. Um, as we talk through this, I can't go into as much detail as we did last week. So if you weren't here last week, I would highly encourage you to go online and listen to last week's sermon, or you can download the podcast, check it out, because we went into much more detail about the background of this story. I'm just going to give you kind of a quick rundown of what's going on here. So Paul the apostle is writing this letter to Philemon, a friend of his who was a pretty wealthy guy. And as a wealthy guy in that time, he had several servants. We might refer to them as slaves. Again, go online, listen to the sermon from last week because we talked about how that language was, was different or what that looked like was very different in Paul's day than how we think about it today. But he had particularly this one servant or this one slave whose name was Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away. He broke the relationship that was supposed to exist and in doing so stole something 
that belonged to Philemon. And when he ran away, and we could say coincidentally, or we could say because of God's sovereignty working in the situation, whichever way you want to look into it, in running away, like hundreds of miles away from Philemon, Onesimus bumps into Philemon's friend, Paul. And at some point on his journey of running away, whether it was before he met Paul or when he met Paul, we're we're not sure, but at some point, Onesimus became a believer in Jesus Christ. And Philemon was already a believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul, who is spending his life going around telling people about Jesus Christ, is kind of stuck in the middle between these two guys. And he understands Onesimus' story and he comes to know what's going on. And he finds out about what Onesimus did to Philemon. And Paul is friends with Philemon and now he's becoming friends with Onesimus. And so Paul writes this letter and he asks Philemon, as well as Philemon's family, his wife Apphia, the church that Philemon was a part of, possibly even leading in his home, and Archippus, who seems to have been a friend of Paul's, who was helping this new church kind of get started and up and running. And he, he writes this letter and asks all of these people to not just forgive Onesimus for what he did, but also to welcome him back into their community. So he doesn't just write and send this letter to Philemon asking him to forgive, but he gives the letter to Onesimus and asks Onesimus himself to take the letter and deliver it to Philemon. So again, and I'm not trying to like belabor the point, but Paul isn't just asking Philemon and his church and his family to move on, to go past what Onesimus did. He's asking them at the same time to welcome Onesimus back. So here's the thing. As we look at this this morning and we think about the relationships in our own life, and the ways that we've been hurt, and the messes that we may be a part of. And we look at, just like Onesimus stole from Philemon, we look at at the ways we've been hurt, and, and we see and we believe that something's been stolen from us. Maybe money, maybe not. Maybe, I mean, that, that could be, but maybe it's something else. Maybe you feel like in that hurt, in that brokenness of that relationship, your reputation was stolen from you. Maybe it was your innocence or your purity. Maybe you feel like somebody has stolen your family away from you. Your dream of what your life could have and should have been. Maybe you feel like someone stole an entire season of your life that you can never, ever get back. And we're looking at this, and our question today is not just how do you move on? How do you pick up the pieces in your own life and go on with your own life? And that's that's not what we're looking at. What we're asking today is, is it possible? Is it possible to forgive the person who stole that from you? Is it even possible? that there could be some sort of restoration? What would it even look like to forgive that person? Paul's not asking Philemon to just move on. He's not giving Philemon encouragement to put his life 
or his and Aphia's life, or his and his church's life back together and get over it and forget what has happened and move forward. That's not what he's asking them. He's asking them to look at Onesimus, the one who stole, and bring him back in as a brother into their relationship. Can you think about what that would cost? Philemon, Apphia, Archippus, the whole church. Not just the cost, I mean the financial cost of what Philemon stole. What would that cost them as a group and them individually in terms of their reputation? As people looked at them and was like, that, wasn't that the guy that stole from you? Wasn't that the guy who, who broke your trust? What would that cost them financially moving forward? What would that cost them? And the constant reminder. Every time they looked at Onesimus remembering that pain that he had caused. And what about the possibility that they're opening up of being hurt again? What if they welcome Onesimus back in? We, we forgive you. You're a part of our family. And he did the same thing all over. Is it possible? I mean, is it even possible that God's asking us to offer that kind of forgiveness to the people who have hurt us? How would we even do that? So I'm going to look at the beginning of this letter that Paul writes to Philemon. And I want to look at, at what he says as sort of a prayer that he says he prays for Philemon. And I want to see how that might apply to us. So take a look at Philemon starting in verse number four. And I just want to look at this small section and see what it might say to us. I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray pray that that the sharing of your faith, and that's going to be a key phrase. We're going to come back to that. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The word of the Lord. I looked at this, this section as, as I'm trying to figure out, okay, where is Paul going and how is he pushing Philemon towards this sort of radical forgiveness of Onesimus? And before, and if you read through the whole letter, before he even mentions Onesimus, before he even talks about the situation and what happened, he starts with this. He leads off with this prayer for Philemon. And I'm just going to be honest, I, I struggle just looking at this the first couple times I read through this, just even understanding what he's talking about. And, and my understanding for a long, long time as I look through this in verse 6 where he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective was I, I thought that that meant somehow telling other people about Jesus, the sharing of your faith. And when we hear that phrase and use that phrase, a lot of times that's what we meant. We tell, we tell people to share their faith. We're talking about going out. And as a believer, finding someone who's not a believer and telling them about Jesus. But as I looked at that, and I'm assuming it didn't make any sense to me what he was saying. If you go back 
and you look, the word sharing there, where he's talking about the sharing of your faith, is actually a Greek word, koinonia. The Greek word koinonia doesn't just mean telling people about something. What it means is sharing together life, being in community with each other, having a shared experience or a common bond together. It's a word we often, it's often translated in the English word of fellowship or community. It's a sense of doing life together, being joined together. What Paul's saying here, when he talks about sharing your faith, it's not, it's not about telling people who aren't believers about Jesus. What he's talking, not that that's a bad thing, okay? And that's definitely a good thing and, and beneficial in all kinds of ways. But what he's talking about, his prayer for Philemon, is that somehow the, the common experience of faith within Philemon's church body with this, this community that meets together in Philemon's home, this, this fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, within that communion of faith that, that Philemon was a part of, that that together would have the power to bring about a change in Philemon's heart. That by being a part of that community, Philemon's heart would somehow be transformed. We believe this to be true. Um, here at Trailhead, if you're around here for, for any time at all, you're going to hear us trying to push you into community. Into maybe joining a community group, being a part of intentional Christian community where you're living life together with other believers, where you're pressing on each other, where you're speaking the gospel into each other's lives, where you're lifting each other up when you're hurting, where you're celebrating with each other when you're down. This is huge. And Paul is saying here, and we see this throughout the New Testament, that when God works in your heart, there are amazing and incredible things that he does in your heart individually, but there are parts of that that you can't even fully comprehend unless you're in relationships with other believers. And that those believers bring out depths of understanding of the gospel that on your own, you probably won't ever experience. But I don't think that's all that Paul's saying here. It's good to be around others who will lift you up when you're falling. It's good to be with others who can inspire you and spur you on and push you, um, speak truth into your lives. Those are great and wonderful things. But I don't think that's the end of what Paul is saying. Because he doesn't just say be in community. He's saying, talking about the sharing of your faith. That there's something about understanding the gospel and how it applies not just to you but to others as well that is holy and completely transformative. And when we talk about forgiveness, and we talk about forgiving those who have hurt us, there's something about understanding our common need for grace that changes the whole picture. So let's talk for a second about what he means, sharing of your faith. Faith, what is that? What does that look like? Because we have to understand that to understand how sharing that together changes us. When he's talking about faith, 
The word faith comes from the same word as belief. And what is it that we believe as Christians? What does it mean to be a believer? And here's what it is. We believe as Christians that we broke a relationship. Just like uh, Onesimus had broken the relationship with Philemon, we as human beings broke a relationship. And it's the relationship between God and man. And we broke it through our sin. When God created the world, he created it perfect. And he was in relationship with human beings. And through their sin, which is inherited by all of us, that relationship was broken. And so each and every one of us throughout time is living in a broken relationship with God. And we could never fix it. There is nothing we could do to pay back the debt of what we stole from God when we broke the relationship. Just like when Onesimus ran away and he stole whatever it was he stole, there was no way he could go back to Philemon and pay him back. He was a slave. He was a servant. He was at the lowest rung financially of the social order. He couldn't pay back what he'd taken. And even if he could financially, he couldn't pay back what he'd taken relationally, what he'd taken away in the months or years that he'd been gone by causing friction, by causing tension within that home, within that church. There was no way he could pay it back. And that's how we are too. There is no way we could ever pay back the debt that we owe to God because of our sin. And yet God, in his love, his great, his unimaginable, his undeserved love for us, chose to pay it off for us. He sent Jesus Christ, who lived completely a perfect life that we could never have lived on our own, and then died for us, taking for us the punishment we deserve, paying for us the price that we should have paid. But we couldn't. Because of our sin, we could never pay that cost. But he, Jesus Christ, because of his perfection, could. And he did. At great, great cost to himself. We talk often about how our salvation, our experience, our reconciliation to God through Christ is free. All we have to do is believe that Christ died for us and our relationship can be restored. We can be given forgiveness and it's free. It is free to us in the sense that there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we could do to work for it. There's nothing we could ever do to deserve God's forgiveness. But it is not free because it was not free to God. And it was not free to Jesus Christ who gave his entire life to pay the debt that we owed to fix, to restore what we broke. We do not deserve that. It comes at a heavy, heavy cost. 
And yet, in spite of the cost to himself, Jesus Christ chose to die to bring us forgiveness with no expectation whatsoever of repayment. There is no clause within the deal that says that we now owe this. There's nothing we could ever do to pay him back. We could work and work and work through religion, through good deeds, through attempting to avoid our sins for the rest of our lives. We could do everything we could possibly do and never pay back what Jesus Christ did for us. This is what we refer to as the gospel. This is what we place our faith in as Christians. This is what we believe. And so when Paul says the sharing of your faith, this is what he's talking about sharing. The idea that none of us, none of us is deserving of a relationship with God. None of us is deserving of forgiveness for our sins. But we forget this. I, I forget this. Often, I forget in two ways the amazing power of God's grace for me. And first of all, I, I often forget my need for it, the depths of my own sin. I start to believe in, in ways that are, are very ugly. I start to believe that I deserve God's forgiveness. That somehow there's something in me that's good enough. There's something in me that of course God would forgive me because I'm trying hard enough. That I could be some kind of benefit to him. That somehow I'm elevated above others. Or on the other end, I forget the complete and total free nature of God's gift. And I start thinking, I need to work for it. I need to earn it. Yeah, he, he forgave me, but now I need to make that worthwhile to him. I need to try, start trying to, to pay back that debt. And one of the ways that God reminds me of the greatness of my salvation is through other people, through community, through my experiences and my interactions with others who are also believers. So when Paul says that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So a big part of what he's saying is by being in community with other people, we can be reminded of the depths of God's grace that we can see in even greater detail our need for salvation and the amazing, just undeserved grace that brings that to us. Sometimes, sometimes being in community with other Christians is painful. Sometimes it hurts to be around other people who are also sinners like us, 
When you've got two broken people interacting with each other, there's a lot of rough edges rubbing against each other. Sometimes to be in Christian community means that we're in regular contact with people we don't like, people, people we don't trust, people who have hurt us, people we've hurt, people who honestly, truthfully do not deserve our love, do not deserve our respect. So again, we come back to that question in in those kinds of circumstances, within that pain, how, how do we forgive? Look at it again, the sharing of your faith. Here's what it is. When I look at another human being, someone who's hurt me, someone I don't trust, someone I cannot possibly imagine forgiving. And when I feel that anger and when I feel that hurt and when I feel that bitterness, what I want to see when I look at that person is the ways they've hurt me. And I want to see them not as another person who's in need of grace, not as a human being, who Jesus Christ also died for. I want to elevate myself in some way because of what they owe me, because of the debt between us, because of whatever it was that they stole from me, whatever that transaction was that I'm better, that they owe me, that I have leverage over them. What God says to us and what Paul is trying to remind Philemon of is that none of us has any leverage over anyone else. We all are equally in need of God's grace. We talk about grace. We talk about the gospel. We talk about God's love for us. Sometimes it can start to just sound theoretical. Sometimes it can start to sound like just this this doctrine, something we read about, something we talk about, but it's not. This is real life. And when I think in real life about what it would cost me to forgive, see, forgiveness comes with a cost, right? Somebody owes me something. For that to be forgiven, that that cost still has to be paid somehow. So Onesimus stole from Philemon For Philemon to forgive him does not just make all that go away. Money doesn't magically come back into Philemon's account. He has to swallow that cost himself. He has to pay himself what Onesimus stole from him. And when I think about what that would look like, what it would mean to take on the cost of what was stolen from me by the person who hurt me, what it would take like, for, for me to pay the cost, maybe financially, but maybe the cost of my reputation. I've got to pay for that now. My peace, my security, my whatever, they took from me and now I have to take that cost myself. The only way that that could work is if I can have the perspective of comparing that cost the cost that I'm absorbing 
the debt that I'm erasing, but paying off myself to the cost that Christ absorbed on the cross. We have to remember that when Christ died on the cross, when, when, when we're forgiven for our sins, that it's not like all that sin and all that brokenness just magically disappears. Somebody had to pay for it. And that somebody was Christ. And when he died on the cross, he was taking the punishment, the cost of all of my sins, past, present, and future, all of your sins, past, present, and future, on himself. <clears throat> taking that cost so that we would not have to. That cost is exponentially higher than any cost I will ever bear in a relationship to someone else. Being in community, being a part of a Christian community requires me to make that grace real. To make it not just a story, not just a theory, not just a doctrine, not just something theoretical to talk about, but something that really is working its way out in my heart and into my relationships with others. Onesimus did not deserve to be accepted back into Philemon's home, back into that church community. He didn't deserve that. He had done something very wrong. He had hurt those people. He had caused tension. He, he ran the risk of driving a wedge between all these young believers growing in their faith and destroying the household, the, the, the very business, everything that was going on. He didn't deserve to be accepted back in. But neither do I. I do not deserve to be brought back into a relationship with God. In very, very practical terms, forgiveness, forgiveness is not about forgetting what was done to you. It's not about pretending that it never happened. It's not about, so I used to think, and this is where I always went when I would, I, I knew, like, <clears throat> I understood and I was told often that as a Christian, you're supposed to forgive. You're supposed to forgive those who have hurt you. And I was like, okay, I've got to do that. But I thought that meant, and I worked and tried very hard mentally to bring myself to a place, <clears throat> excuse me, to bring myself to a place where I could make excuses in my mind for why that person had done what they did. I thought in order to forgive someone, I had to get to a place where I could say, it's okay. What you did to me is okay. I'm good with it. I accept it. I understand that you were going through this and this and this. I understand that you did it because of this, this, and this. And if I could get myself to a place where I could accept it, where I could understand it, then I could forgive them. And I thought that forgiving meant understanding the why and getting myself to a place where I was okay with what they had done to me. Thank you very much. That is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness does not mean being okay with what's been done to you. Because let's be honest, there are times where there is no excuse. 
There are times where there is no explanation. There are times where you've been hurt. And the other person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Where what they did to you was so bad, was so evil, that there's no way you could ever get yourself mentally to a place where you're okay with it. And you shouldn't. Because it was wrong. But that's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means releasing that person from the debt that they owe you. When someone sins against you, when someone hurts you, when someone breaks your relationship, they incur a debt. And you know this. And in your mind, they owe you something. Forgiving them means releasing them from what you believe they owe you. That is hard to do. What we want to do is balance the books. Relationally, we are very often accountants in our minds. And we are keeping track of who owes us and who we owe And we're trying to get it all balanced out. And so either through causing them equal pain (coughs) or through seeking for them to pay us back, we're trying to get back what they've stolen from us. Forgiveness is letting go of that debt. Of saying in our minds, maybe saying out loud, but at least in our hearts, saying they don't owe me anymore. And I'm no longer going to try to leverage what they did and the way they hurt me against them to try to make myself feel better, to try to make sure they feel the same pain. I'm letting go of that debt. And in doing that, honestly, oftentimes we absorb that debt ourselves. Forgiveness hurts sometimes. And so when Paul is writing to Philemon, he knows that what he's asking Philemon and his family and his church to do is going to hurt. Because he's asking them to let go of a debt and bring Onesimus back into community. And so he leads off his letter by reminding Philemon that he and Onesimus have a shared debt and a shared experience of grace. And that the debt that Philemon and Onesimus owed to God and the forgiveness that was given to Philemon and Onesimus by God through Christ is greater much greater, exponentially greater than the debt that Onesimus owed to Philemon. I think maybe the best way to understand this is through a story that Jesus told. If you would, if you still have your Bibles open, turn over to Matthew chapter 18. I want to read this story that Jesus told when he was talking about forgiveness. Matthew 
So one of the apostles came to Jesus and he asked him about forgiveness. And specifically he said, look, I understand forgiving somebody when they feel sorry for what they did, when they're not going to do it anymore. So I can forgive them then. But if I say I forgive somebody and then they come back and do the same thing, and in my mind that means, okay, they weren't really all that sorry to begin with, were they? And, and, and in those kinds of cases, I don't really have to forgive them again, do I? I mean, how many times do I have to keep forgiving someone over and over and over again before I can finally just say, look, enough is enough. The debt you owe me is so much greater than my ability to cover it. What is that line? And Jesus says in verse, uh, Matthew 18, verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, because Paul had asked how many, or Peter had asked, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? That seems like a lot. And he says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Over and over and over again. And then he tells this story. And so I just want to read this story. And here's what I want you to understand. As we read through this story, and, and, and I want you to listen to this. Sometimes we hear people talking about forgiveness, and, and it sounds like a command. You must forgive. And when I hear it as a command, it sounds like, honestly, an impossible command. How am I supposed to do that? I can't do that. But here's what I want you to see. The idea of forgiving someone is not just a command. It's an invitation. And it's an invitation to freedom. And if you've been hurt before, I think you'll understand this. When you are living by the books, trying to balance out who owes you and what you owe them, that's incredibly confining. It's incredibly torturous. It's a kind of living that wears on you. It is a weight every day of always constantly seeking to get your books balanced, to get yourself into a place where you feel like you have been paid back what was taken from you and it wears on you. And what Jesus says as he tells this story, and it feels in some ways like a very scary warning, but what I see it as actually is an invitation to freedom. So listen to this story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18. Therefore, this is verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. That word servants is the exact same word in the original language as the word that Paul uses in his letter to Philemon to describe Onesimus. This is the same situation. He wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, it's hard to equate exactly what financially what that money would translate to into our day, okay? But if you look at the amount of money people earned daily um, and compare that to kind of like today, even in minimum wage, 10,000 talents would roughly translate out from what I understand from my research to about like honestly $7 billion, okay? So he brings in this servant and says, you owe me $7 billion. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. There's a $7 billion debt. Payment must be made. The $7 billion doesn't just magically float away or appear or anything. There's $7 billion. The only chance is to sell off his whole family. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. That's impossible. This debt he owed was so huge. There's no possible way he could ever pay it back. Okay, if you owed someone $7 billion, you could say, oh, be patient. I'll pay you back. When? In 100,000 years? You can't pay back this debt. But out of pity for him, verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. What did that cost the master? $7 billion it cost him. 10,000 talents it cost him. He didn't get the money back. He had to absorb it himself. I don't know what this master's line of work was. I mean, he must have been fairly wealthy to have been able to loan out that money in the first place. But I'm guessing his bottom line was probably affected by a $7 billion loss. But out of pity, he forgave the debt. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii roughly translates in our day to probably about $12,000. To me, that sounds like a lot of money, $12,000. If somebody owed me $12,000, I'd really, really want them to pay me back. But I'm sure you're all thinking, and Jesus' listeners were all thinking $12,000 compared to $7 billion seems like a pretty small amount. $12,000 on its own is a significant amount of money. In comparison to $7 billion, it's not that much. But he found the fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And everyone said, that sounds familiar. Everyone except the servant. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Let's pause. He had every right to do that. Okay, his fellow servant owed him $12,000 or owed him 100 denarii. And it was totally legally correct for him to have that servant put in prison, wasn't it? He's not getting the money back by him being in prison, but he is getting a sense of justice from it. But when his fellow workers, verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed because their standing outside of this. And they're seeing $7 billion, $11,000. And they're seeing the reactions of the people who were owed. And they're saying, this doesn't compute. And so they were greatly distressed and they went. And they reported to the master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. Wicked? He hadn't done anything wrong. Everything he did was totally within his rights. He was owed that money. He deserved to be paid back. And the guy who owed him the money, he deserved to go to prison. He had not paid back a very large debt that he owed. How is that wicked? But the master says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Not because you paid me back. Not because you earned it. Just because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. The word jailers there could also be translated tormentors or torturers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Unforgiveness leads to a kind of torture in our souls. We don't always see it that way. Because we're looking at that debt, that hundred denarii debt, and we want it paid back. And if we can't get it paid back, then at least to have the person who owes it to us pay the penalty legally, to pay the penalty relationally, to pay the penalty emotionally, we think that will be good enough. But what Christ is telling us here is that as long as we are living by that system, As long as we're living by the system of you owe me, you must pay me, we are living in torture. But forgiveness is the path to freedom. So here's the bottom line today. Being in community with other believers, that that can hurt. It can bring pain. And being in community with those who have hurt us just multiplies that pain. The only solution to that multiplication of pain is a greater multiplication of grace, an exponential growth of grace. When we view others as sinners equally in need of grace, the same amount of grace as us. Where the books are not about he owes me this, but about what I owed that I could not pay and I was forgiven. And we see all people as equally in need of God's grace. Paul wrote in another letter to the church in Romans, In Romans chapter 5, verse number 20, he said this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, 
grace abounded all the more. Where pain is greatest, God's grace is even greater. Where our hurt grows, God's grace grows more. So as we look at this this morning and reflect on this, I'm going to walk through a couple questions together and I'll give you some time to reflect. But let's make this real. First of all, who, who is it that owes you a debt? Who is it who's stolen from you? Who is it that has broken a relationship, that has done something that, look, let's be honest, they do not deserve forgiveness. And what is it that they've stolen from you? What is that thing? Is it, is it something physical, something tangible, financial, or is it emotional? What have they stolen from you? And then let's ask this question. Did Jesus Christ die for that person? Does, does his grace cover them in, in the same way that it covers me, that it covers you? Or did you, did I somehow deserve God's grace and they didn't? Was the debt... <clears throat> The debt that God erased for me somehow less than their debt. Am I somehow better than them? Or are we all equally in need of the same grace? How, how is God using other believers in your life to grow your understanding of grace? Is that something you're allowing him to do? Have you pushed back? from being in community because of the fear of being hurt? Have you prevented yourself somehow from opening up because of the hurt and the pain that you've experienced in the past? God wants to use your pain to grow you, to make his grace more evident to you. So how are you allowing him to work through other believers in your life? Look, as you reflect on this, we understand this is painful, painful stuff. This is hard stuff. This is not something that we want you to walk through alone. This is part of, a big, big part of why we're here as a church is to walk with people through the messes of your life. So if you'd like to have a conversation, if you need somebody to walk through this with you, I would encourage you on those response cards in your bulletin. Let us know. We would love, love to get in touch with you, to talk to you, to hook you up with resources, with other people who can be a benefit to you. If you have questions, if you want to know more about grace, about what this would look like practically, please let us know. You can drop those in the boxes up here on the communion table. You can put them in the baskets on the way out. But we would love to be able to be a part of what God is doing in your heart 
through those messy relationships. I'm going to pray, and we're going to have a few moments of time to reflect, and then we're going to share communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. I understand today, God, that I do not deserve anything from you. I, I don't deserve forgiveness. God, the debt I owe is so much greater than anything I could ever pay you back. Yet for some reason, you chose to forgive me through your son at a, at a cost that I can't even comprehend, that I can't even understand. You chose to send Jesus Christ to die for me. So I come to you with thanks with gratitude, but also with repentance for the times that I've withheld forgiveness from others. The times that I've looked at at the debts that they owed me, and in my mind, those debts have been bigger than the debt you released me from. I pray that in all of our hearts today, you would give us a greater view of you and of your grace, a a view of your grace that would move us towards forgiveness, that could move us towards reconciliation, that would move us in a way that makes your glory greater. So Father, as we're praying through these things and, and thinking through what this looks like in each of our lives, I pray that we will remember who you are and what you've done for us, and that it was all through your Son, Jesus Christ.